You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Episode 12 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelists Leah Henning and Lisa Cordles. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. As always, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners new to the program. Lisa, you go first. My name is Lisa Cordles, and I used to be a professor at Crown College with Victoria Farmer. And right now I'm in the process of publishing my first novel. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, Leah? I'm Leah Henning. I, um, I'm an MA student at Loyola University, Chicago, studying Renaissance and early modern European history. Uh, I come from a conservative Christian background and uh, – Totally stoked to be part of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Thanks, Leah. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm an adjunct professor of English and sociology at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, And I am defending my dissertation on young adult novel versions of Shakespeare in 31 days. So uh, I'm pretty much a nervous wreck right now. I would say congr- I'm going to say congratulations anyway, though, because you're like getting toward the end. So, thank you. That's very nice. I, I no, have... I'm curious. It's a huge accomplishment. So, congratulations, Victoria. Yay! Thanks. But really, you guys can congratulate me in a month when this is all over. Okay, we'll do. Thanks. Okay, so today uh, we are going to talk about one of the. Uh, to use Sarah Bessie's term, one of the spiritual midwives uh, of the CFP, Christina Rossetti. And we're going to start off with uh, a really quick, really basic biography. So Christina Rossetti was born December 5th, 1830, to Gabriel Rossetti, who was a political activist and exile from Italy, and Francis Polidori, who was a a reader, a writer, and ran in a bunch of famous literary circles. Uh, She was friends with Lord Byron and a couple other people of that era. So... The house that Christina Rossetti grows up in is a super literate household and a super socially conscious household because of her parents. Um, Some of our listeners might be familiar with the paintings and poetry of her brother, Dante Gabrielle Rossetti, who um, also becomes famous for founding the salon called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, which Leah is going to tell us about in a bit. Uh, The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is important to Christina Rossetti herself for several reasons, 
One of which being, this is where she meets James Collinson, who is her first fiancé. Yes, I said first. So they get engaged, and things are going great for a while. Uh, He's raised Catholic and converts to Protestantism, basically for her and also for some other reasons. But they break it off in 1850 because he reconverts to Catholicism, and she says, no way. Uh, She is... After that, engaged to two more men, linguist Charles Cayley and painter John Brett. Uh, she breaks up with both of them as well, also for religious reasons. Uh, she writes her whole life, basically. She dictates her first uh, series of stories to her mother before she even learns to write herself. Um, And in addition to writing, she's really heavily involved in a lot of political causes. Uh, She's an ardent abolitionist and also an early crusader for animal rights. And from 1859 to 1870, she volunteers at the St. Mary Magdalene Charity House in Highgate, which is a a shelter and a refuge for former prostitutes. Uh, Lots of people think that Goblin Market, one of the poems that we're going to talk about today, is a response to her work uh, with these reformed prostitutes. Uh, Goblin Market and Other Poems, which is published in 1862 when she's 31, uh, is her biggest, most famous work, and it is published to rave reviews. She continues publishing for pretty much the rest of her life after that, mostly devotionals and children's poetry. Late in life, uh, she's uh, pretty seriously disease-ridden. She suffers from both Graves' disease and breast cancer, and the latter, uh, though she's in remission for a while, the latter eventually kills her in December 1894, and she dies at the age of 64. So that's pretty basic biography. Uh, Leah, tell us more about the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. All right. Well, the pre-Raphaelite movement is just really interesting of itself. I guess a basic description of it was that it was created to reform art through the collection of English artists, authors, and critics. And their goal was really to return to what they perceived was a golden age of art before I quote unquote, the corruption of art education happened Uh, during the time of Michelangelo, Raphael, and other classical artists. And that's really where the term pre-Raphaelite came from. Um, It was founded in 48 by the men that you mentioned, William Hunt, John Millay, and also Dante Rossetti, one of Christina's brothers. Um, Her older brother, William, of course, joined. uh, He would eventually become editor of The Germ, which was a major pre-Raphaelite publication where uh, Christina would get some of her earliest poems published. Um, James Collinson, Frederick Stevens, and Thomas Volner were also members, and those seven men became the famous brotherhood of the pre-Raphaelites. Um, Something interesting about the seven of them is that they have different religious backgrounds. They're all pretty much Protestant, but some of them participate in a sort of Catholicization of the Anglican Church, um, 
which was something that Rossetti was actually involved in. Uh, and she was involved with that herself. She joined that perception of the Anglican church uh, around 1844, which was when she was really suffering one of her first bouts of depression. Um, And that was something that she, her mother and her sister just really involved themselves with for the rest of their lives. Um, And that Catholicization became an important part of the pre-Raphaelite movement, which sought to go back to that time to experience art in a more natural, serious, and heartfelt manner than what they saw in the art around them. So by applying the classical views of the Catholic Church to the Protestant practices, Rossetti and other pre-Raphaelites were bringing in a more timeless continuity to their work rather than simply mimicking the Romantics, um, whose... uh, period was ending just about the time when this movement was beginning. Another interesting part of the pre-Raphaelite movement was that they incorporated a lot of women into their group. Um, Some of their artists included uh, Rosa Brett, Emma Sandis, uh, Lucy Maddox-Brown, and Kate Elizabeth Bunce. Um, Some of those are really big uh, artist names um, for those of you who are into art history. Um, But really the pre-Raphaelites were just trying to recreate how art was viewed in its different mediums at the time. Thanks, Leah. Uh, I I really like your discussion of uh, the kind of gray area and shading between um, Protestantism and Catholicism within the pre-Raphaelites. The Rossettis are are Protestants, and Christina does break up with her first big suitor because he becomes Catholic, but uh, thanks for telling us that that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Lisa, can you talk a little bit more about how Christina's religion shows up in her poetry? Yeah, she had a couple of themes that show up in a lot of her poetry throughout her life. And one of the the main ones that has a dual kind of theme is sacrificial love and what that looks like and divine love. And then also what I might call profane love or sinful love shows up quite a bit as well. And then what I got from her poetry is she really thought has a, it feels like she's almost quoting Romans that the wages of sin is death. And so when you read her poetry and especially in Goblin Market, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, you definitely see this idea of profane love leading to death. It's very clear. There's a clear allegory made there. And you also see the sacrificial love, that divine love that she talks about in many of her poems, uh, you know, being emphasized in the person and work of Christ. And so that definitely comes through in her poetry. A couple other things that come through are this idea of doubt, um, having religious doubts. Certainly, um, she had a crisis of faith. Um, 
Thank you so much, Leah, for everything you said. And she, you know, she was very devoted to her Anglican faith throughout her lifetime, but she did go through times where she did question her faith and have religious, what we might call religious crisis or, or doubts. Um, Covenant Threshold is probably the most well-known poem that goes into that. And, um, but that is also found in Uphill as well a little bit. Just by her asking the questions, um, using the question mark at the end of the the first line of poetry in each one. So she did have that as well. And then, of course, she talks very seriously about temptation and desire and how if those things are misused, they become this profane love and this tragic love that leads to death. Uh, And so that shows up in her poetry quite a bit as well. She also has a real acceptance that death is uh, the finality, that's the end to one's life, and that after that, you you know, you have an eternal resting place. Um, she, she gives these different um, allegories and, you know, metaphors to what a picture of heaven might look like, and you certainly see that in Uphill as well. And then, of course, um, definitely for, for her time period and when she's publishing – Um, And writing poetry, you know, in this Victorian era, she's definitely challenging not just societal societal implications for what it means to be a woman, but she's also challenging uh, uh, religious or spiritual norms for gender and sexuality, which also comes out throughout her poetry. Thanks, Lisa. Um, A lot of those things that you mentioned are going to come back up again both when we talk about Uphill, uh, our first uh, poem today, and when we talk about Goblin Market, um, which we'll probably spend more time on because it's longer. But first, before we get into the poetry, um, let's go around the table and talk about our experiences with Christina Rossetti's work more generally, and uh, and why we think she's a good uh, subject for the Christian Feminist Podcast specifically. Leah, you go first. I have actually not had much of a chance to delve into Rossetti before. Um, I was first introduced to her in my British literature class in undergrad, where I fell in love with Goblin Market, which is a poem that we're reading today. Um, She is just a wonderful author, uh, and the way that she manages to stay true to herself as a woman and keeping with in the social constructs of femininity and masculinity while still managing to somehow challenge them through her writing is incredibly um, inspirational and just wonderful to uh, experience through her works. Lisa? I actually took feminist theology right before I took um, Victorian era literature, I think was the name of the course. And um, I had not actually read a lot of her poems. I had heard of her before the course, but of course we definitely dove in and spent a lot of time on her. One of the things I just loved was I had just learned in my feminist theology course about the Krista figure. And 
And I just fell in love with how that Krista figure is in Goblin Market. And I definitely used it in what, as one of my examples as uh, the Krista throughout literature. And I just, I just loved that. I just loved it. And um, for those of you that don't know what that is, um, I I'm, feel it's a feminist theological term, but maybe it's used elsewhere. It's where you see a Christ, Christ-like figure or a picture of Christ or a symbol of Christ in the feminine form uh, in literature, poetry, film, whatever, what have you. So I loved that. I loved making those connections, and I still love that. Yeah, that uh, that feminine Christ figure is definitely one of the things that drew me to uh, to Christina Rossetti's poetry, which I discovered um, as a teenager. Um, I'm, I must have been, I guess, fourteen. Um, we read um, some of her Easter poetry in my eighth grade poetry class, um, and I, I liked it so much. Um, Firstly, because we didn't really read a lot of women in my literature classes um, growing up, and and that's something that uh, I, I guess proves that that I've always been myself because that that annoyed me even at a pretty young age. So uh, so I liked her when we read her in class, and I sought out more of her. And eventually, um, a few years later, late high school, early college, um, I found this illustrated edition of Goblin Market and read Goblin Market for the first time um, with with DG Rossetti's um, illustrations and my edition was in color and it's these like crazy kind of pseudo psychedelic um, fairy tale-ish but with a really dark edge illustrations and I, I just fell in love with them and they, they made the poem uh, come alive to me in uh, in a different way. So Goblin Market has always been, uh, since that time, one of my very favorite poems. I teach it um, every opportunity I can get because I think that it, uh, it really does expand students' notions of, of what feminist poetry is, of what Christian poetry is. Um, and also of, of what kind of stuff can come out of the Victorian period, because as Lisa suggests, this is uh, this is pretty uh, pretty progressive poetry for the 1800s. Uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Rossetti as uh, as one of my spiritual midwives, and as one of the spiritual midwives um, of of this show, I think more generally. Uh, that is a term that comes from Sarah Bessie's Jesus Feminist, which we uh, talked about on this show last year. And she invents it as a way to recognize the feminist men and women that have uh, have shaped us as Jesus Feminists, have shaped us um, in our walks with Christ and in our desire for equality. So uh, it's important, I think, that in, uh, in doing this show on Christina Rossetti, we do call her out uh, as, a, as a spiritual midwife of the CFP. Uh, and that said, um, let's talk poetry. We're going to start with a shorter poem, uh, Uphill. And because it is shorter, uh, I'm just going to read the whole thing first, and then we will talk about it. So, Uphill by Christina Rossetti. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. 
Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. But is there for the night a resting place? A roof for when the slow dark hours begin. May not the darkness hide it from my face? You cannot miss that inn. Shall I meet other wayfarers at night? Those who have gone before. Then must I knock or call when just in sight? They will not keep you standing at that door. Shall I find comfort, travel sore and weak? Of labor you shall find the sum. Will there be beds for me and all who seek? Yea, beds for all who come. So that is Uphill. Lisa, tell us more about the poem and uh, its vision of Christianity. Well, certainly she talks about the struggle that, you know, Jesus said in this life, you will have trouble. And she talks about that. And she she's quite I love how it's a question. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Well, Christ said in this life, we will have trouble. And so I just love how that just echoes that scripture. She And she says yes to the very end. There's no question. There's no ambiguity. We're going to struggle in this fallen world. And then I love how um, she comes to the next question. Uh, but is there... But is there for the night a resting place um, where we can, you know, have solace and that eternal peace and that divine love that she talks about? And, of course, you know, the very last stanza gives us that image of heaven um, where in my father's house there are many rooms. And I just love how she she evokes that verse. And I believe that is, I'm sorry, I know the verse by heart, John 14, verse two. And um, I just love how she evokes that by talking about the beds. Yes, there are beds for all who come. And in John 14, verse two, um, Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you and that I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm sorry. I'm Yeah, that's right. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, and I just love how she evokes that here at the end. So there, there is a little bit of religious doubt in this poem, but there is a confidence at the end. And I love how she's asking questions that everybody has asked. Um, these are big theological questions. You know, are we, how long do we have to struggle, Lord? Well, till the very end. And is there a place of eternal peace and divine love? Yes, there is. But you have to seek and you will find. You have to knock and the door will be opened unto you. And you won't be left standing at the door. There's just so many scriptures that she evokes um, throughout the poem. And I just, I love that. And I love how she taught her image of heaven is this inn where anyone who knocks on the door is not left wanting. And there's beds for all who come. And I just, I just love that. And so throughout this poem, there's just a lot of her themes that we talked about a little bit earlier, um, certainly more played out and just tons of scriptures are evoked throughout this. Um, if anybody else wants to talk about that, that's fine. There's just a couple of more. I think I mentioned several, but um, if somebody else wants to chime in in the scriptures that you think of when you hear this poem, because that's all that kept coming to mind. My mind was the word. And you can just see how steeped in the word she is. And that just comes through in her poetry. Uh, what I thought was really interesting scripturally, um, I, I totally echo everything you said about um, about doubt. I, that's comforting to me. Sometimes I feel like 
um, especially as women, we can we can feel like bad Christians if we if we question too much. So I, I really responded positively to um, to the existence of the repeated questions, but also to the fact that um, that each question does have an answer. There is that kind of um, sureness, but it's not it's not too tidy either. It's not. Um, the, the rhyme and rhythm and meter aren't the same in every stanza. Uh, even though each question does have an answer, um, the shape of the poem, the rhythm and meter of the poem, don't let it uh, tie everything up in, in too even or too neat a bow. So I like that too. Uh, but as far as Bible verses or passages that came to me, um, this metaphor uh, of heaven as in um, at the end made me think uh, of uh, of Luke 2 and, and Mary and Joseph and, and not finding room at the end. Um, but, but the fact that this inn is different uh, for us, and there are lots of rooms there because we are, we are post-Christ, and he sort of com- completes this metaphor. Uh, so that's, that's where my brain went. Leah, did you have anything to add there? I almost saw it as an inverse of Revelation 3.20, which is where Christ says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, except she's expressing it from the view of of a Christian going to God for comfort. Um, That was the image that was in my mind, uh, although I I love the fact that you brought in um, Mary and Joseph looking for respite that that's a beautiful image as well that I didn't think of. But um, I, yeah, I, I thought of it more as a flip of that verse in Revelation. Uh, great. So obviously there's a, a lot of material here for, for mining. Uh, Listeners, let us know if you see more uh, more imagery or more uh, theological resonance that we're not touching on. Uh, so now that we've touched a little bit on the Christianity of Uphill, uh, what about its feminism? Is it there? Where is it? Um, is it obvious or not obvious? Leah, help us out with this. All right. I have to admit... When I first read this poem, I did not see a feminist perspective. And in my research, I actually did not find much of a credible argument for a feminist message in this poem, although both of you might have found otherwise in your research. Um, The one that I did stumble across was that the argument could be made and has been made that the journey of the first speaker... um, is the voice of women or the oppressed struggling to find equality or acceptance in society, uh, especially in the third stanza where the reference to, quote, those who have gone before could refer to women or the oppressed who have attempted to breach um, social constructs that have limited them. Um, but this perspective seems very stretched to me. In fact, it feels more like an imposition of modern beliefs upon Rossetti that she may or may not have held. 
she was an amazing poet who certainly did appear to challenge how women were traditionally viewed in society around her. But that does not mean that she was as much of a proactive pre-feminist as she is sometimes made out to be. Again, that's not to say that there isn't a feminist message to be found in Uphill. But if there is one, I would be careful about imposing my modern concepts of equality and gender on Rossetti's sensibilities. And in the end, I think that this is a more appropriate poem to read as an image of Christianity than for a feminist message, although others are certainly free to disagree with me. Uh, first of all, thanks uh, thanks for being a solid historian there and, and, and warning us against presentism. Uh, I, I think that's really, really important uh, to, to note when thinking about historical pictures of feminism that we don't, as you said, sort of shoehorn um, our, our own views on, on other people. So uh, very good. Thanks for that. Uh, and I, I do think you're right. I think that... Um, that this poem um, is is primarily on its face a Christian poem, um, unlike Goblin Market, which we'll get to in a second, which I think does both things, uh, Christianity and feminism or proto-feminism, pretty pretty equally. Uh, but you know, uh, we we should allow Rossetti to contain multitudes. Uh, just because we're calling her a Christian feminist here doesn't mean all her poems have to be equally Christian feminist, because that would be silly. Uh, Lisa, did you have anything more to say here? Only that I concur. I think the um, the feminist perspective is more present in Goblin Market, which we're about to talk about. But I certainly... Um, I certainly think this is a good example of a lot of her religious themes that she uses in other she uses in other poems. All right. So without further ado, let's uh, let's get into Goblin Market now. And it is um, it is a rather long poem. It's uh, it's over a thousand lines, I believe. Uh, so instead of reading it aloud as we did with the last one, uh, Lisa is going to give us a summary of it. Okay. Um, first of all, I just want to encourage everyone to read the poem. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's certainly groundbreaking. I just, I love this poem. I come back to it many times and I just, there's so much in it that's worthy of, you know, one, two, three, four, 10, 20, 30 reads. Okay. So summary, <laughs> Laura and Lizzie are sisters. Um, they're certainly presented in the poem as virginal maids who are not married um, they are tempted by the goblin merchants to buy forbidden fruits. These fruits seem to represent temptation um, in all of its many forms. They also seem very magical, and obviously they're desirous of them. Uh, Lizzie uh, is the voice of morality throughout the poem, and she warns her sister not to give in to the cries of the goblin men. She reminds Laura to remember their friend Jenny, who gave in to the taste of their fruits and withered away and died. Laura, um, Laura gives into her passion for the fruit and all of its temptations. And there is a moment in the poem where she enjoys the ec ecstasy of eating it. And, you know, there's a lot of her, you know, there's a lot of imagery about how desirous she was of that fruit. And there's definitely some sexual overtones there as well. Um, while she's eating the fruit, uh, the temptation, um, 
But the temptation after she finishes eating the fruit and goes home poisons her heart and her mind and her soul so that all she thinks about is going back and getting more fruit. So, yes, she had that moment of ecstasy, but then it turns and we see her physically, spiritually dying. Her hair turns gray. She's withering away. So her sister, Lizzie, determines to save her sister. Um, she she wasn't going to at first, but um, after thinking about it, she decides that she's going to go buy her sister some more of this fruit um, that she's so desirous of that she's dying to have it. She's not sure this is the right choice, but she she wants to save her sister. Um, so then Laura goes to the goblin men and she offers them uh, money to buy some of their fruit, but she wants to take it home to her sister. They don't like that. They want her to stay and eat it. She says, no, I'm um, not. You know, she wants to go back home after that. She's attacked. She's beaten. There's a lot of imagery about how they're pinching her. They're clawing at her. They're tearing her clothes. Um, but like Christ, um, she sacrifices herself to them on behalf of her sister. Um, she takes their beatings, their humiliations, all of the pain, but she never eats the fruit. She returns home to her sister with juice from the fruit smeared all over her face where the, the goblin men were trying to force her to eat it. And she kept her lips closed tight so that no juice, like she didn't swallow any of the fruit, but you know, the juice like got smeared all over her face. And she comes to her sister with tears and it, it seemed to me and this is a little bit of commentary, I guess, but it seems to me like her tears mixed with the juice of the, the goblin fruit, the forbidden fruit is the an antidote, which saves her sister, restores her soul, restores her back to health. Her gray hair goes away. And then the poem ends with Laura and Lizzie as grown women. They're, they're wise women now. You know, they've been wisened by um, experiences and they are wives and mothers. And now they warn their daughters of the goblin men and the power of temptation. And then it ends just beautifully with this lovely little, really, I think just beautiful. It's very quotable about a sister's love and their story. All, to me, the story of Laura and Lizzie becomes their parable that they pass on to the next generation. And that's very clear at the end of the poem as well. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, you did a really great job hitting, uh, hitting all the main points there. And I, I definitely agree with, uh, with your exaltation that our listeners should, should definitely read the whole poem for themselves. Uh, as I said, it's, it's one of my all time favorites. So, uh, now that we've gotten a summary, um, this poem is considered a proto-feminist classic, uh, and it's considered proto-feminist for a lot of reasons, uh, chief among them being it centers around this incredibly strong, uh, not just strong, but, but actually strengthening, physically and emotionally strengthening, relationship between these two sisters, uh, even though... Uh, we're kind of supposed to read the sisters as um, as dichotomously opposed archetypes. Uh, Lizzie is good and cautious, and Laura is is maybe a little bit rebellious and and more easily tempted. Um, but even though they're different types of people, they're bonded by their really strong love for each other, and this is uh, this is pretty significant. 
Um, generically, uh, as in, in terms of genre, the poem is also pretty interesting because um, it, it's a it's a feminist fairy tale of sorts. Um, it's it's not a, a terribly realistic uh, poem for a lot of reasons. Uh, the uh, the most of which being there are goblins who talk. Um, but also because at the beginning of the poem, these are children who seem to be living and and working and operating by themselves without any adults around. Uh, I've read criticism that refers to the poem as a, a kind of uh, woman-centered or girl-centered Hansel and Gretel uh, kind of tale. So you've, you've got... Um, other genres coming together in a, a girl-focused way. Um, also, as Lisa already mentioned, this poem has been called proto-feminist because of its um, in-depth, frank discussion of sensuality and sexuality. Um, and, and this happens kind of in, in two different ways. Uh, first, it happens because of the sort of gruffness and, and violence of the goblin men uh, who are often described in animal terms. Uh, here's a, a passage. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail, one like a wombat prowled obtuse and furry, one like a rattle tumbled hurry-scurry. So I think you can hear there, uh, in addition to the repeated um, animal imagery, there's a, a kind of childlike cadence and, and repetition uh, to the poem as well. So that combination is interesting because you've got kind of animal threat and violence combined with a very uh, sing-song pace. And this, this disconnect continues throughout the poem. Uh, when when Laura buys the fruit, she doesn't have any money, so she buys the fruit with uh, a lock of her hair. Uh, so she's she's purchasing this forbidden fruit with a symbol of her femininity. Uh, but sweet tooth Laura spoke in haste, good folk, I have no coin to take or to purloin. I have no copper in my purse, I have no silver either, and all my gold is on the first that shakes in windy weather above rusty heather. You have much gold upon your head, they answered all together. Buy from us with golden curl. Uh, so the female body uh, literally becomes currency here. This section is one that makes uh, critics say that Rossetti may be uh, writing criticism of what has been called the Victorian marriage market, that the, uh, that the market in Goblin Market is, is selling more than just fruit, is selling, uh, you know, me metaphorical fruit, uh, metaphorical ripeness of virginity. So that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty progressive for the time period. Um, and the, the last point I want to make about sensuality, um, I'd like to read a passage that happens after Laura tastes the fruit, um, and, and listen for the, the description here. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? 
She sucked and sucked and sucked the more fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away, but gathered up one kernel stone and knew not was it night or day as she turned home alone. Uh, so that that repetition and description is is really sensual and and really uh, really kind of graphic uh, for a poem of the period. Um, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of the feminism of the poem is uh, its its evocation of uh, what literary critics have called the trope of the fallen woman. Uh, th this idea that as women we tell stories uh, of women that bad things have happened to as a cautionary tale to uh, to protect um, other women from bad decisions. And uh, as Lisa mentioned, their friend Jeannie is, uh, is the example of this. Uh, so here's what the poem tells us happens to Jeannie. She pined... And pined away, sought them, the fruit, by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled and grew gray. Uh, then fell with the first snow, while to this day no grass will grow where she lies low. I planted daisies there a year ago that never blow. So, uh, the, the idea that Lizzie is telling us here is that Jeannie gets so changed, so uh, irrevocably changed by the eating of this fruit that um, that she's affected by it even in death. After she dies, um, grass doesn't grow on her grave. Um, so that's that's pretty serious, right? Uh, the, the idea that um, that this kind of violation affects the female body even after death. So uh, some feminist critics have said that this is um, this is sort of a criticism of the trope of the fallen woman that it, it exaggerates it to to make a point. Uh, some critics have also said no, she's just uh, she's not criticizing it as much as she's invoking it. Uh, so she steps outside of her period's norms in some ways, but not in others. Uh, so those are some significant ways that Goblin Market evokes some feminist themes. Uh, as we've said, though, it also uh, has a lot of Christian themes. So, Leah, tell us about those. There really are a lot of Christian undertones to this poem, so I'm just going to touch on a few of the main themes. Um, really, to fit with Rossetti's overall style, uh, Goblin Market has that balance of sensuality and a religiously moral message. The fruit of the goblin is, of course, a symbol of temptation. And as most Christians know, the, one of the most significant instances of temptation in Christian theology is the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. So knowing that, the fact that Laura and Lizzie are being tempted by fruit seems to make a clear connection to the temptation of Eve, especially considering the fact that they are women and the classical reading of the fall of man is that the temptation began with woman. So there's this undercurrent from the very beginning that this is a sort of symbol of the fall of man, especially when Laura gives in and buys the goblin fruit. And in regards to that temptation, 
Lizzie and Laura are very obviously the embodiments of the two different approaches to temptation, giving in or overcoming it. Um, but as we've talked about previously, uh, Lizzie's character is much more than that. She is a Christ figure, that Krista figure that Lisa mentioned earlier. Um, in line, I think it's 471, she actually tells Laura when she comes back from going to the goblins to, quote, eat me, drink me, love me, um, which sounds an awful lot like take and eat. Here's my body broken for you and drink. This is my blood spilled for you. Um, and it fits with Lizzie's actions because she physically gets beat up by the goblins when she goes to save her sister from wasting away. Um, so to continue with the theme of the fall, if Laura represents the corruption and fallenness of mankind by giving in to the temptation, and Lizzie represents Christ, then Laura, or all of humanity rather, is redeemed by the actions that Lizzie takes in going to the goblins and giving herself up to save her sister. Now, this could be partly set aside when looking at Laura. Um, Laura's temptation isn't as simple as the account of Eve's is in the Bible. Instead, Rossetti has a lot of that very sensual sexual language, as you brought up, um, and a good example would be when the fruit is described in the first 30 lines or so, and she uses descriptions like plump, unpacked, bloom down cheeks, sweet to tongue and sound to eye, um, all of which make, make your mouth water for this fruit that she is describing. Um, and when Laura gives into that temptation for the goblin fruit, the image of her giving into that pleasure uh, as we heard when you read it, is just rife with sensual language. Um, and that, in turn, brings us back to Jeannie. As mentioned before, all we really know about her is that she ate the goblin's fruit and then wasted away, and that she fits that trope of the fallen woman. Um, but more than that... Uh, in line 314, it refers to the joys brides hope to have, which can refer to sex or children. And Jeannie is deprived of that because of her relation to the goblins and the fruit she bought from them. Um, which kind of attaches a sort of um, loss just because of her association with the goblins. Um, the fallen woman trope, of course, is significant in Christian as well as feminist language because of the marks of sin and degradation that come with the title. Uh, the fact that Jeannie is brought up by a warning by the Christ-like Lizzie points to the importance of purity or redemption in the face of sin, temptation, weakness, what have you. And it's special to note that Laura ends up in the exact same place that Jeannie was. She was fallen, faded, and dying. But because she is saved by Lizzie, 
she's able to move past the mistake she made and continue on to have a family in the future, something that Jeannie was completely deprived of. Um, and that is a happy ending that may or may not refer to the rewards that the redeemed are given in heaven. And I'm sure there are plenty of other points to the poem that we could look at to discover the centrality of Rossetti's Christian beliefs to what she writes. But the topics that I brought up are a good starting point for anyone interested um, in the Christian imagery that's just throughout Rossetti's poetry. Thanks, Leah. Uh, Lisa, do you have any final thoughts about uh, Goblin Market? Yeah, I just want to piggyback on a little something that Leah said that I just really loved about it. Um, Certainly there's a lot of feminist theology in this poem. You certainly do have the depiction of Eve, you know, being a woman eating the forbidden fruit and being the cause of a fall into sin. But then Rosetti just kind of turns that on its head by turning her sister into this Christa figure. And I just love that. It isn't a male figure that symbolically rescues her sister. And she doesn't even go look for one. She has that within herself. And I just, I love that image. I love that symbolism. I love the allegory. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons I keep coming back to this poem again and again and again. And I just have to say, I find it very groundbreaking for the time period again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's uh, that's one of um, one of the things that keeps me coming back to the poem too. So I think that brings us to our final segment, uh, passing on where we recommend texts, artists, things we think you should uh, read or see or talk about. Lisa, start us off. Okay, I have two that I wanted to share. Uh, One is an article, and I'm just going to give you the book that I found it in. It might be in other places. It's called The Feminist Face of God, Art and Liturgy by Jeanette Stokes. It's in several um, feminist theological anthologies, but you can certainly find it in New Feminist Christianity, Many Voices, Many Views. And again, that's feminist, The Feminist Face of God, Art and Liturgy by Jeanette Stokes. It definitely goes into this whole idea of the Christophe figure, and kind of thing. So if you're interested in that and diving into that a little bit more, and there's a lot of opinions on the Christa figure and what that means and the implications for it. And Jeanette Stokes certainly does address that stuff in that article. The other piece I wanted to recommend was Sisters in the Wilderness, The Challenge of Womanist God Talk. And as we see a Christa figure in in Rossetti's uh, poetry, in womanist theology, Hagar, uh, the story of Hagar is a symbol of their story and their life. And so one of the things I just love doing with any kind of literature is finding those key points where you see, you know, feminism and theology and Christianity and all of these you know, things come together. And uh, Sisters in the Wilderness by Dolores uh, Williams really helped me define um, just the Hagar voice. And what that means to womanist theology, which is the African-American feminism, the uh, womanist theology. And so I just wanted to share that. And once you kind of see the Hagar allegory and the Krista allegory, it's hard not to see it in not only modern literature, but um, 
classical literature. And as for me, like once I saw those two things after reading this article in this book, um, it just opened up literature in a new way for me. So those are my two encouragements. Leah, what do you have for us? Um, I have some more historical uh, suggestion, reading suggestions um, for listeners. One would be The Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood by Jan Marsh, um, which goes more into the women who were involved in the Pre-Raphaelite uh, movement Um and not just authors, but also uh, artists and the women behind the Brotherhood um, that were involved with starting this whole movement. Um, and the other is simply a website for anyone interested in the literature or history of this time period that we've been talking about. And it's victorianweb.org. There is a lot of information um, about all sorts of different authors and works and literature movements and cultural movements that are really central to Victorian England. Great. Thanks, Leah. Uh, my recommendations are less related to this week's episode. Uh, instead, I'm going to backtrack uh, to our previous episode uh, on LGBT people and the church. Uh, we got some really smart feedback on the Christian Humanist blog about uh, the fact that we our episode was maybe a little bit one-sided um, and, uh, and that we didn't really cover some more conservative uh, viewpoints. Uh, I, I agree with that. I think that's an accurate criticism. So I wanted to, to take some time uh, to respond to that a little bit and to um, to give some more resources that do, I think, cover another side of the issue. Uh, two things that I found uh, are both from celibate gay Christians um, who talk a little bit more about um, identifying as gay, but um, but believing that uh, that the lifestyle would be incorrect biblically, so choose to be celibate. Uh, the first is a recent Christianity Today article by Wesley Hill called Why Can't Men Be Friends? Uh, and in this article, Hill laments the uh, kind of marginalization of friendship as a virtue in our society, talks about how because sexuality is kind of our master role now, that, that friendship isn't as valued and that's a bad thing. Uh, so I'd recommend that article. And then the second is uh, an ongoing discussion on um, Rachel Held Evans's blog. She's doing a series on Matthew Vines' book, God and the Gay Christian, right now. And as part of that series, is hosting a Q&A with her friend Julie, who um, is a, a celibate gay Christian woman. Julie's uh, going to be answering questions left by readers in, uh, in 
the comment section on Rachel Held Evans's blog. Unfortunately, those comments are going to be open for just one day, uh, and that's today, Thursday, September 25th, as we're recording this. So uh, by the time our listeners hear this show, that'll be closed. But I, I do recommend that you go and uh, and look at those comments and questions and answers. If you're interested in seeing um, a side of the gay Christian discussion that we didn't really cover here. So those are my recommendations for this week, and that wraps us up. Thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you'd just like to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this episode or previous episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Christian, Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Leah Hinning and Lisa Cordles, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for a discussion of Christian women in leadership and leaning in. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>